Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Hey guys, take a seat. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here today. <laughs> so last week I was driving, and uh, which, by the way, I realized as a middle-aged parent, you spend about 75% of your life in the car. You're just driving kids to and from school and practices and sports. You're driving to work. You're eating lunch in there because it's quiet and warm. You can be alone for a minute. You're sitting in your driveway calibrating your life before you go back inside. But anyways, I was driving along, and I went past a place that made me laugh because I remembered a couple years ago we went out to eat there because Jenny had purchased a Groupon for two large pizzas. So we walked into the place, and this waitress came over and said, hey, what do you want? And she explained the Groupon, and she said, oh, Everyone's doing that right now. It's such a great deal. What two pizzas do you want? And so we told her, and then we never saw her again. I think she took our order to the kitchen and then just kept walking straight out to her car and drove home. But she didn't tell anybody, so we just sat there like idiots for a really long time, just trusting that someone was making our pizzas. And I kept trying to tell Jenny, it's fine. Pizzas take a long time to cook. And then 30 minutes later, a second waitress came over, and it was then that we and she learned that our original waitress had disappeared. It was surprising to everyone. And so she said, well, what do you want to order? And we explained the Groupon, and she said, oh, everybody does that right now. It's such a great deal. What two pizzas do you want? So again, we put in our order, and we saw her after, so we thought everything was good until the cops showed up and arrested her. They took her away. And at that point, my mind started spinning. I was like, where's that first waitress? <laughs> Did she get a hot tip? The cops were coming, and she saw on the lamb. Did she get murdered? Did that waitress kill her and now she's going to jail for the rest of her life? Did she just go home? And if she did just go home, I hope she thinks about us still. I hope she sits there sometimes and wonders if we're still waiting for pizza or if someone took care of us. But anyways, finally, our pizzas were delivered. Just kidding. A pizza was delivered. And the third waitress who delivered that was just in shock that we had ordered two pizzas. Like no one had ever ordered multiple pizzas in the history of the world, despite the fact that both the missing waitress and the criminal waitress said everyone did that at that restaurant. And then she said, I'll get you another pizza. And 20 minutes later, she brought most of it, three quarters of it to be exact, and said two pieces fell on the floor in the kitchen, but this is the rest of it. And I don't even know how that happens. I'm not sure the physics add up. So Jenny did not eat any of the pizza, which left more for the rest of us. And you guys are going to be surprised to learn three things. Number one, I was very ill that night. It's possible the entire pizza had, in fact, been on the kitchen floor. Number two, that restaurant, not still in business. It's unbelievable, right? Number three, like a month later, I had the TV on in the background, and I saw our original waitress on America's Most Wanted. Turns out she was on the run from federal law enforcement. <laughs> Not really. Numbers one and two, sadly true. I made up number three, but I do hope that girl is okay wherever she may have ended up. Also, though, I hope she's not a waitress anymore because she was very bad at it. So bad that it left me with trust issues at restaurants. And I'm sure a lot of you can relate to that. Hopefully not to that specific situation, but to having trust issues. 
We have all been let down by people we were counting on to do way more important things than bring us some pizzas, right? And so we have a hand up to trust because we don't want to get hurt. We don't get taken advantage of. We live in a society that treats skepticism like it's some sort of a virtue because we're all aware that our world is shattered and people are broken. And so we kind of have our guard up to, to trusting too much. But then we come to faith and God asks us to trust that hope is real even though sometimes we look around and everything feels hopeless. That healing is coming, even though sometimes we look around and everything feels broken. That his promise of peace counts for us, even though sometimes we look at our lives and our world and they are anything but peaceful. When it comes to our relationship with God, trust is kind of the key. And I'm convinced of this, trust is the foundation of relationship. We can't have a meaningful, deep connection with God or with anyone else outside of trust. It's the building block of connection. But something in our basic makeup as human beings is resistant to trust. It's difficult for us, in part because our sinful nature causes us to believe we don't really need God or anybody else. We just want to do it all by ourselves, captain our own journey, write our own story. And so sin's influence in our lives leaves us naturally inclined to hold a hand up to the idea of putting our faith completely in God. I remember when my kids were really little. From the time they came home from the hospital through their toddler years, they had incredible faith in me, which was a terrible call, by the way, on their part because I had no idea what I'm doing. It's so stupid how we do this in America. I went to PetSmart the other day. If you go to PetSmart to buy a fish, you have to sign a contract with them that you're going to provide a good fish home, and they give you a guide for fish care. If you go to the hospital to have a human, they tell you, try not to shake it. It's it's (laughs) unreal. But my kids, when they were little, they had like unshakable faith that I knew everything, and then they grew up and they stopped believing that. And if you're sitting here like, well, what'd you do to them? Like, nothing. I did nothing. I, I let them down in the same way that every parent lets kids down, but they stopped trusting in me because they grew up and just like every single human being who's ever existed in the world, they decided they wanted to do it their way instead. That's just part of the deal. And now I have a, a preteen and a teenager, and I'm convinced that teenagers are God's practical joke on humanity. <laughs> like one day he was up in heaven, and he looked down, and he was like, let's see how they like it when they create something in their own image, and then it denies their existence. <laughs> But like that, that journey from trust to mistrust is a supernatural journey for us to go on because as we get older and as sin continues, it's like invasive influence in our souls. We believe more and more that we don't need to trust or maybe even that we shouldn't trust. Like sin breeds cynicism. And for me, one thing I've discovered is the places where I'm least able to trust God are the places where I'm most influenced by sin. And I'd be willing to bet the exact same thing is true for you. Like if you stop and think about it, if you can pinpoint an area in your life right now where you really struggle to trust God or maybe even trust anybody, chances are sin has got its grip on you in that area more than you even realized. And peace is going to feel evasive in your life until you get that sorted out. 
We're in the middle of a Christmas series right now called The Promise of Peace, where we've been going back to the very beginning of the human story to see the origin of the Christmas story, to get a bigger, better picture of what God's doing. And in part, we're doing that this month because I'm convinced you can't understand the manger if you don't understand the mess. You can't really get what Christmas is all about. You might have a lot of fun in December. You might like the lights and the presents and the cookies and all that stuff, but you're going to miss the transformational, life-altering power of the Christmas narrative if you don't understand the magnitude of the wreck God stepped out of eternity into the human story to fix. You can't understand the manger if you don't understand the mess. But when you get it, when you see it, It changes everything about the way you live and the way you trust God. Because if we can trust in the way God invites us to trust, his promise of peace becomes real for us. And not just in like a philosophical, ethereal, like, yeah, sure, God promised that sense. But in a right here, right now, this changes everything about the way I'm living every day way. And so today... I want to continue looking at the ancient origin of the Christmas story because I'm convinced trust matters if we're ever going to step into the lives and the futures God has for us. But also, it matters that we learn how to trust in a world that invites us in the other direction because trust is like a muscle. It's this faith muscle that we have to exercise if we're ever going to be able to use it the way we're meant to. And in terms of developing that, that faith muscle, that trust muscle, we're all at different points along the journey, but we all have a next step we can take. Every one of us in this room has a step that we can take from the place where we are right now in the direction of the life God says he has for us. And I'll lay my cards on the table. I want to stir you up this morning to take that step. Even though I know, no matter what that step is for you, it's going to be difficult to trust God enough to take it. But my goal this morning is to help all of us trust God like that by looking at why God is trustworthy. Specifically, we're going to take a look at who God has been to his people again and again and again because our God is unchanging and he remains the same and who he's been is who he is right now. So we're going to do that by opening up uh, the book of Genesis right at the beginning Chapter 22, it's just a few chapters after the story of Hagar, which Jamie's amazing message took us through last week. And in Genesis 22, here's what's going down. We're coming to the end of the life story of a guy named Abraham. He's a dude God had invited to leave the land he was living in and made an incredible promise to that he'd be blessed and he'd eventually have a son. And through that son, he'd be the father of many nations. And through those many nations, the entire world would be blessed and drawn into the love of God. This is an amazing promise God made Abraham, but then it kind of seemed like God didn't keep that promise because Abraham didn't have a son. His wife Sarah couldn't get pregnant, and they tried for like a year after God made the promise, and nothing happened. And they tried for another year, and another year, and they tried for a decade after God promised them a son, and nothing happened. So then they took matters into their own hands, as we talked about last week, and Abraham ended up getting Sarah's slave girl pregnant, which exploded everything relationally, because of course it did. What a terrible, awful, stupid plan. And God showed up again. He's like, I promised you. I got you. Trust me. So they trusted for another decade and still nothing 
happened. And at this point, they weren't just old. They were like old, old. They've been trying and failing to have kids for a long time before God even made that promise. And then finally, after a quarter of a century of this cycle of hope and hurting and hope and hurting and hope and hurting, it happened. Sarah got pregnant and this miracle baby, the child of the promised, Isaac, was born. At this point, Abraham was 100 years old. So if you think about it, that year for their birthday, Abraham and Isaac both got diapers, which is kind of neat. You can, you can share. You fast forward 15 years from that, and we hit Genesis 22. This is what goes down. So sometime later, like after everything happened, Isaac finally arrived, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, I don't know if that's how God sounds, but Abraham, here I am, he replied. Quick time out. Sometimes I wish God would talk like that to me. Anybody else in here ever wish that God would just audibly say, hey, this is exactly what I want you to do? It'd be nice, wouldn't it? It wouldn't. That was a trick, okay? Every time God does that in the Bible, he follows it up by telling someone to do something super difficult. So I don't know if I actually want God to call me by name. Like he'd shown up in Abraham's life a whole bunch of times. So he says, Abraham, and Abraham says, here I am. But it's kind of interesting. Here I am wasn't like a Hebrew way of saying hi. The actual word that Abraham speaks here is just one word, hineni. And hineni literally translates, I stand ready for your command. Which I think it's, it's a little bit nuts that Abraham answered like that. Because time and time and time again, God showed up in Abraham's life and then invited him to leave something comfortable and go attempt something impossible. So if I was him at this point in the story, like if I had lived his life and God showed up and said, Mike, I'd have been like, no, 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 no. Just try to fake like I was sleeping until God left. And I know pastors probably aren't supposed to admit that, but sometimes I don't want to do more hard things. I want to tell God, I've already done enough hard things. And Abraham had done so many more of them than I've ever done. But here's the crazy thing. I think he was able to respond like that because his faith muscle was strong. Every time God had ever asked him to do something difficult, God showed up. And so he knew if God called him and he said, hey, I'm ready, let's go, God would deliver on whatever God had promised. And I just think for you and me, the difference in our lives between meaning and meaninglessness, the difference between joy and dryness in our faith is trust. I can't help but wonder how many incredible things God wants to do in and through our lives that we miss out on completely because we're not ready to say, amen, I stand ready for your command, let's go. But that's what Abraham said, and God responded. And here in Genesis 22, verse 2, the pace of his life story slows down from literally years per sentence to seconds per sentence so that we can feel the weight of what's happening in this moment. God looks at Abraham, he says, all right, man, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, take Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, 
sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Can you even imagine that? It shakes Abraham to the core. His guts are ripped out of him in this moment because Isaac is his future. Isaac is his pride. Isaac is his joy. Isaac is his hope. He's old and rich. Isaac is the only reason he's getting out of bed in the morning. And God asks him to take this thing that he loves and sacrifice it. Like, why would God do that? And some of us might be sitting here right now thinking, that does not actually make me want to trust God more. Mike, I know you said we were going to trust God more, but I trust God less because God asked that. It's awful. And my response to that is, yeah, it is. I think sometimes in the church, we feel like in order to be good Christians, we kind of got to gloss over horrifying details and be like, well, well, there's a bigger picture there. But God doesn't want us to do that here. I'm pretty convinced that's why he takes it from the generic to the specific. He says, your son, your only son, your son whom you love. God is trying to help us feel the weight and the horror of this moment. And the question is, what in the world is God doing? Well, hang on to that thought. This is what happens in verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Like, don't miss this. On the third day, Abraham was still moving forward. I think it's fairly easy for us sometimes to nail it at our initial response to God's call. Like, we come together on Sundays and we leave here kind of like fired up. Like, okay, I'm going to go show the love of Jesus to the people I crash into. I'm going to go do what God called me to do. I'm going to go make a difference in the world. And by the third day, we walk back into school or work and we're just like, like by Wednesday, our tanks are empty and we got nothing left to bring to the table. And I think it's important for us to understand faith is found in faithfulness, not initial excitement. Like this life God is calling us to is a long obedience in the same direction. You're like, well, how in the world do I do that? I want to, but every week by Wednesday, my tank really is empty. And here's the thing. Faithfulness is inspired by trust in who God is. That kind of faithfulness that allows us to stay the course is inspired by knowing who God is, how God loves, and how God provides. It was not Abraham's character or his grittiness as a human being that kept him moving toward that mountain. It was his unshakable trust that God had never failed him yet, so God wasn't going to fail him this time. And we know that's true because of what he says next. In verse 5, he looks at his servants and he says, hey, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Who will come back? We. We will come back. Because Abraham wasn't lying. He, he wasn't trying to trick his servants here. He believed no matter what happens, we are both coming back. And we read, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. 
Here we get a glimpse of what Abraham has been doing for the last three days. He's been reminding himself with every step, God will provide, God will provide, God will provide, God will provide. He's been battling his human tendency towards skepticism, toward leaning into self-reliance, and he has looked back over his life to remember God has not ever failed to provide. And then when they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. I want to make sure we have an accurate picture of what's going down here. Because I think in my mind when I read as a kid, I had it like super twisted. But to be clear, we have a 15-ish year old boy and a 115-ish year old man. So if you stop and think about it, Isaac did not have to get up on that altar. I mean, even the fastest 115-year-olds, not that fast. Not that fast. Like if Isaac kicked him and ran, what was he going to do? Just shoot. Like, I mean, it wasn't going to happen, all right? So we got to understand in this moment, Isaac crawled himself on top of the altar and allowed his dad to bind him. You're like, why in the world would anyone ever do that? And the reason is really simple. The faith that he'd seen in his father had caught fire in his own heart. He believed what Abraham had shown him his whole life, and that was that God provides. And as a pastor and a dad, I think like we can Tell our kids about God, and we should. We should tell them about God all the time. But it changes the game when we show them. The kind of faith that transforms people is caught, not taught. Like when we live like we actually believe, the stuff we say we believe, it changes the hearts and the minds of the next generation. That's exactly what happened for Isaac here. He knew God provided because his dad had demonstrated that again and again and again in his life. And that kind of stuff that's the stuff that's shown a whole lot more than it's told. That kind of faith is caught, not taught, and it's the kind of faith Isaac had. So he crawled up on that altar because he knew God always provided. He'd seen it, and he believed. And there they were. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And moment. I can never read this story without just pausing here. It feels almost surreal. Like time stands still while that knife is in the air. And you just wonder, how could God command this? Let me explain. What God's doing here is not just asking Abraham to murder his kid. If that was a big idea, he could have smothered him with a pillow in the tent back home. That would have been a lot easier. right? But this is deeper. It has ties to the Old Testament sacrificial system. In the Old Testament, the Hebrews would sacrifice the firstborn of their cattle and the firstborn of their sheep, and they'd bring God the first fruits of their crops as a way of reminding themselves that God is the author of life, that every living thing owes everything it's got to the source and the sustainer. And so they sacrificed the firstborn to orient their hearts in the right way, to say, God, I owe you my life, and I owe you everything I have. And to be clear, that's what God is asking Abraham to do, and he knows it. Like, if he'd had a dream one night that God said, hey, I want you to murder Sarah to prove that you love me, he'd have woke up and said, weird dream. Like, that was a nightmare. I must have been hallucinating, because he knew God would not command a murder. He understood that what God was asking him in this moment was to orient his heart the right direction. 
and sacrificed the firstborn because he owed the debt. So make no mistake, Abraham knew his life, his son, and everything else he had belonged to God. He raised the knife because he owed the debt. Also, though, he raised the, light, or he raised the knife because he believed God could raise the dead. He had full confidence. we got to understand, at no point on this entire journey, at no point while the knife was in the air, did he believe for one second that maybe he'd have to have another son, that maybe God wouldn't fulfill the promise he made to bless the world through Isaac. We know because Hebrews eleven six tells us, he raised the knife believing, if I watch my son die today, I will watch a resurrection. We are coming back. We are coming back. Because in that moment, God's promises and God's character were on the line. But Abraham knew who God was, and so he trusted that God would provide, and that's exactly what God did. The angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it's said on that mountain, or on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Like God provided. And the part where he tells Abraham, hey, now I know that you trust me. Let's be clear, God already knew, but now Abraham did too. Abraham knew in this moment that he actually trusted the giver more than he trusted the gift. I think in our lives, like if we sat down and made a list of all the gifts, if you and I went home this afternoon and we wrote out every single blessing God has given us in our lives, like could we look over that list and then bring it open-handed to God and say, I would sacrifice any of this to you if you asked for it? I don't know that we could. Until this moment, Abraham didn't know that he could because it's really easy to let our trust and our identity migrate from the giver to the gifts. But afterwards, he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that his faith was in the giver, and Isaac knew too. And because of that, they watched God provide in a way that grew their faith and their trust even more. And that's why Abraham named the mountain the Lord will provide. Like in their culture, it mattered a lot what, what the names of places were. But notice, this mountain wasn't named for the way Abraham obeyed. It was named for the way God provided because God's provision is the ground for our obedience. We can do what God asks us to do when we know God will show up in the way he promised us he'll show up. We're able to follow boldly when we trust greatly in his faithfulness. That's the impressive thing here. Not our commitment to him, but his commitment to us. And so Abraham named this mountain, but he also gave a name to God. He named him Yahweh Jireh. In the Old Testament, Yahweh was, was the name for God, but they wouldn't speak it out loud out of, out of respect and honor. And so when they pronounced this, like as the Hebrews read the Old Testament scriptures, they would say Jehovah Jireh. Can you guys all say Jehovah Jireh with me? Jehovah Jireh. It means the God who provides. The God who never fails us. Because what would be different about our lives if we really believed like deep in the core of our soul in Jehovah Jireh? 
What fears would be quieted in us if we were actually convinced that God will never fail to provide? We can believe that. And not just because God showed up for Abraham and Isaac on that mountain, but because thousands of years after that, another son, an only son, a son beloved by his father, showed up one Bethlehem night and took on humanity to be with us. But that's not quite where the parallels end. Years later, that son would walk up the exact same mountain Isaac walked up. The mountains of Moriah in the Old Testament were Jerusalem and the surrounding hills and mountains after that. And that son, too, would carry the wood for the sacrifice on his own back. And that son, like Isaac, would willingly lay himself out on the altar to be sacrificed. It's the same drama reenacted. Like God was doing a way bigger thing than Abraham could have possibly understood. Even to the point that Abraham and Isaac were able to find a ram as a substitute. And because it was caught by its horns, it wasn't bleeding. It was an unblemished sacrifice. And thousands of years after they sacrificed that ram, the son of the promise walked up that hill we call Golgotha and allowed himself to be sacrificed as an unblemished lamb. For your sake and for mine, paying the full price of our sin because of the scandalous, ridiculous love of God. Because where there was no way, where there was no human path possible to fight our way back to God, God fought his way to us. Jehovah Jireh provided. He provided a way where there was no way. And that's the heartbeat of the story in Genesis 22. It's not about Abraham's commitment to God. It's about God's commitment to Abraham. And it's the heartbeat of the gospel, you guys. Following Jesus is not about our obedience. It's about his faithfulness. It's not about what we do. It's not about the boxes that we check and the the list of accomplishments we have for God. That's nothing. It's about his faithfulness to us, which means we don't have to get caught up feeling like we got to achieve or earn our way to God somehow. There's a bunch of hoops we have to jump through in order to be worthy of his love. We just have to rest in the beauty of his faithfulness to us, of his love that caused him to step into our story and give everything so we could be forgiven and set free. Like that's the love that allowed him to conquer death from the inside so that we could live forever in connection with God, the connection we were created for. And if you've never put your faith in that, you can this morning. It's, it's easy. It costs nothing other than your whole life. You just have to believe and surrender. And when we do that, when we lean away from the sinful brokenness inside of us that resists trust and aims our lives towards self-reliance and lean into trusting God, then all of life simply becomes a response to the extravagant love we've received. It's a liberating way to be. And it allows us to take the next step forward and then the next one and then the next one. And I want to challenge you to do that this week. In this Christmas season, I want to invite you to ask the question, what's the next small step of faith God's calling me to take so I can develop my trust muscle? And then I dare you to take it. And maybe for you, that next step is finding a place where you can serve. 
Maybe for you, that next step is finding a spot where you can get plugged into a group or, or to community. Maybe for you, that next step is pulling out your calendar and figuring out a way to prioritize showing up at the group you're already a part of because God has something for you to get, but also give in community. Maybe for you, the next big step is to give financially in a way that's scary because it's so sacrificial. Maybe for you, the next step of faith is to take action in the direction of getting rid of an addiction that's had a hold on you for a really long time. Maybe for you, the next step is as easy as giving up a TV show or as complicated as giving up a relationship, but it's, it's giving up something that's been drawing you away from God rather than bringing you toward God. Maybe for you today, the next step is as easy as going home and making that list of every good thing God's given you of every blessing in your life, and then confessing to the giver that your trust and your hope and your identity have migrated to the gifts. And maybe for you, the next step today is as simple as believing for the very first time that Jesus did what Jesus did and that it counts for you, that you're forgiven and set free and you can be part of his family. And if you want to take that step, head to the prayer banner after the service. Someone will walk through it with you. But no matter what that next step is, I just want to invite you to take it today. Move one step closer to the place God has for you. Because I think it's worth it. But I want to admit first, it's not going to be easy. It may be a small step, but it will never be a simple step. As human beings, we only grow through discomfort. And the older I get, the more convinced I become that the easy moments in between discomfort are basically just killing time. It's going to be a challenge. But if you take it, God's going to show up. I just, I'm convinced one of the biggest reasons we don't trust God is that we don't trust God. I get it that that sounds like super nonsensical circular logic, but hear me out on this. If we never trust God enough to take one step, then we never get to experience his faithfulness. Like if we don't put ourselves in a position where he's got to show up for us, we never witness him showing up for us. And so the question is, will you do that? Will you put yourself in a position where God might be able to show up for you? I think if you don't, if we don't, if we won't take the next step in this season, then we're going to find that peace and joy and hope and all the stuff that's supposed to mark Christmas kind of escape us. We're not going to be able to grab hold of them because we don't trust God enough to see them be real in our lives. But if we'll do it, if we'll take the next step and then the next step and then the next step and then the next step, what we'll find is the revolutionary beauty of the lives and the futures God has for us as he begins to write the story in and through us that he's dying to write. What we'll find is that he always shows up. Will you guys pray with me? Lord, thank you. Thanks for being the God who provides. We live in a world that's so messed up, Lord, that all of us, all of us struggle to trust. And there's a sinful inclination in us to just chart our own course and do things our own way and to avoid really trusting that you are who you say that you are and you'll do what you promise you'll do. But I pray today that you give us at least enough trust, maybe just enough trust to take that one next step from the place we are toward who you say we're created to be 
so that we not only can be filled with hope and love and joy and peace in this season, but so that we can deliver that to a dark, hurting, cynical, mistrustful world. God, allow us to trust so that we can live more fully, but also so that we can make an impact on a desperate and hurting world. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.